Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our originals page when shopping for books and movies we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. I was so excited for our big Star Trek film franchise series this season. All those movies adapted from Gene Roddenberry's original 1960s TV show. As a huge fan, I know that you geeked out over analyzing the adaptations. Absolutely. From the motion picture to the Kelvin timeline films, seeing the Enterprise crews on the big screen was a dream come true. Our list of source material isn't just all books and plays. We have the original series in our list of source material. You can rent the episodes to watch and enjoy and support the show in the process. For our Millennium Trilogy series, we covered films adapted from the original books that launched Lizbeth Salander, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played with Fire, and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. As much as I love Fincher's version, the original Swedish versions are the way to go. We also did our Die Hard series in Season 7. I can't believe Die Hard and Die Hard 2 were adaptations! Two of the greatest action movies ever. Well, one of them at least. The other is awfully fun, though. We revisited the classic Mary Poppins for our 1960s movie musical series. A spoonful of sugar always helps the medicine go down. Old Boy was intense for our Park Chan-wook Vengeance trilogy. And East of Eden and Giant were highlights of our James Dean series. And a fun time travel mind bender with predestination to cap things off. Find all the books behind these adaptations and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Dive into the source material for your favorite movies. Check it out today. Thenextreel.com slash originals. The trailer, Andy, is an exercise in hyperbolic language. That is true. <laughs> Andy, I think if you were going to keep it true to the trailer, you would have to say that is the most true thing ever. Yes. That yeah, is totally 
That is what it is. This is the frankest motion picture ever made. I don't know what that means. <laughs> well, it's pretty frank, I guess. I guess. Although there's I no guess. one named Frank in it. There's no, there is no way I would expect, based <laughs> on your Detroit, the Detroit gauge, <laughs> there should be more Franks in this movie. Uh, no, the Detroit gauge means that this would have to take place in a town that is east of Eden. And it is not. And it's not. There is no, there should be no <laughs> metaphor, judging by the Detroit gauge. Uh, the, the trailer is, uh, it, it's a, actually a fantastic trailer of the time. It is really entertaining to watch in and of itself. Uh, I find I just chuckle at every next hyperbolic line. Uh, and, uh, it's, it's just sort of beautiful in, as, as a piece. <laughs> it's kind of a piece of cinematic, small cinematic art. Uh, the way they introduce the characters in the trailer. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure it, it wouldn't, I'm not sure it would make me want to see the movie if I wasn't uh, already a Steinbeck fan. Um, but it was certainly entertaining to see. Well, they, they hit that right out of the gate as far as Steinbeck showing the book as the entry point for the trailer. I think it's the longest single shot in the trailer. That is a really, really long <laughs> hold on that book. What I thought was interesting is it's actually movie trailer guy and movie trailer girl working in conjunction on this one. That was a really strange twist is that we had, oh, had both of them speaking. That's so progressive. And it really was. I wonder if she was an impatient girl who turned into a desirable woman. I, I loved this. This this line in the trailer um, makes it sound like Warner Brothers is really just like the place. To capture for you the stark realism of people who love so deeply, hate so deeply, live so recklessly, Warner Brothers had to seek out vibrant new personalities, tap new sources of talent, create new stars. That's oh how big God. this story is, Pete, that they have to just it's, start all over again. It's so big. And Warner, it just is such an ego trailer. I know that's just sort of how they talk to themselves about themselves uh, of the era. But can you imagine, uh, you know, Universal had to make another mummy? You know, <laughs> I mean, can you imagine that kind of language in today's trailer? Uh, I, so I cannot. It is it is it is they are quite proud of themselves. You know, what's really funny is this came out the year that Marty came out. And I don't know if you remember the trailer for Marty, but that was that was its own peculiar trailer because that's the one where it had, I believe it was Burt Lancaster who was producing it. And it was him like talking yeah. about the importance of the story and, and what you were about to see and all that sort of stuff. And you hardly saw any bit of the movie. It was mostly just him talking to you about what you're going to see. Yeah. He's like making the case. Right. Listen, listen, I just... I need you to see this motion picture. <laughs> I need you to watch it, please. I sunk a lot of dough. So, so that's funny. my Burt Lancaster. What'd you think? Of that? that was probably the worst. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't I'm not sure I could. I don't know what Burt Lancaster sounds like right now. So I was rolling the dice. <laughs> well, it was something. It was something. That's for sure. It's the decade's most daring novel. Such startling characters. Such untamed emotions. Now it's the frankest motion picture ever made. Yes, life in its every emotion leaps from the pages of John Steinbeck's best of all his bestsellers. And to bring new vitality to every explosive chapter, to capture for you the stark realism of people who love so deeply, hate so fiercely, live so recklessly, Warner Brothers had to seek out vibrant new personalities, tap new sources of talent, 
create new stars. James Dean as Cal, the wildest boy you've ever met. Julie Harris as Abra, the most outspoken girl you've ever known. Joe Van Fleet as Kate, the most wicked woman you've ever seen. And all the other memorable figures who form a dramatic cavalcade that moves across California's lustiest era and her most colorful locale. This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that over there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, we're going to say hello to our mothers in a little place just east of Eden to kick off our series on the films of that hunky James Dean. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you enjoy tuning in and are interested in supporting our ongoing work investigating great film, please consider a regular donation through our Patreon page. You'll get to join our back channel conversations on Discord, help us pick movies for upcoming series, and listen to the members-only weekend show, The Saturday Matinee, where we talk movies, trailers, box office, and more. Plus, we have a battle of the lists of movies related to our show that week. In honor of the film we're talking about tonight, this week's list will be movies featuring Brothers at Odds. Just head on over to patreon.com slash thenextreel. How come you did it? Did what? Shot my father. Because he tried to hold me. He tried to tie me down. Nobody holds me. East of Eden, Andy, what'd you think? Do you like this movie? You hadn't seen it. I had not seen this. Um... You know, John Steinbeck is uh, an author who has one of his novels, Grapes of Wrath, is one of my favorite novels. Um, It really is just a story that really always hit with me. Um, That being said, I haven't read many of his other novels. I never read this. I, I, I did read Of Mice and Men. I'm trying to think what else I read of his. Not much. And so um, this really was largely a new story for me. And and coming into it, I I did enjoy it. It's um, I think it was it was very big. It was broad. I I kind of enjoyed all of those elements. Um, I I was and after watching it, it actually made me more curious to read the book because looking at it, it, it's it looks like they only adapted chapters thirty nine through fifty five of the book when they when they wrote the script. They left out a huge portion of it. So I'm very curious now about the rest of the story. Um, but, uh, you know, James Dean is really the reason that we are doing this series largely because he was this, this, you know, uh, flash in the pan, uh, who really burst onto the scene, uh, with this film and the next two, um, and then died in a, in a terrible accident. And, and this is kind of our, our, our memory of him, but he hit so strongly because he captured kind of that teenage angst at the time and kind of people's. Um, the way that people were um, reacting to society and everything, particularly the teenagers. And I think looking at it from that perspective, it's it's really interesting to see what James Dean is doing here and and kind of how big he is. And yes, he is you know, very much kind of a, a big actor. Um, but it made for a film that um, I really enjoyed watching. I felt like it, the characters were really interesting. Sometimes I, I really struggled with kind of the the ultra um, uh, moralistic nature of the father and the brother. And to a certain extent, the ultra naive nature of the brother. Um, um, but I, you know, you have to look at it as the time, um, when things were really starting to shift. Um, and 
I, you know, I think that part I struggled with, but for the most part, I enjoyed it. I adore. I, this was a. I, I don't know how many times I've seen this movie. I think maybe only once, and then some other times when it was on around my house. You know, I, I think my mom really enjoyed East of Eden, and and I know we had it uh, growing up, but uh, it was not. Um, it's not one that I remember having a very strong connection to, and and I would say this is uh, I'm I'm there with it here too. Uh, I don't have a really strong attention to it. I feel exactly the same way that you uh, do about some of the the naivety of the brother, the way he was sort of played as a pawn, both kind of politically, um, but and sort of zealously, religiously uh, with the dad. That relationship, I I don't really relate to it. I don't remember the book. I read it in college i think and i just never had really a connection with it either uh and so uh the the movie uh i I really after last week's film i really uh enjoyed not having a very strong opinion (laughs) of this movie (laughs) it's delightful uh i am fascinated by james dean uh and, and watching him again in this movie particularly in in light of just watching him as a as as and I don't know. Maybe you would disagree, but I I think he's our Tom Cruise or our uh, you know Brad Pitt uh, is is this generation's James Dean. Would you agree? Is that kind of what we're or, or is, is that a fair parallel? Yeah, like if you take uh, you know Tom Cruise from like you know eighty six to eighty seven, and yeah, <laughs> you, know, you look at yeah. like you know because to, the top- fifteen movies that he did that year. <laughs> right. But Top Gun, you know, <laughs> Top Gun, uh, you know, um, all the right moves. If you kind of yeah. look in that that short period where he he probably did a, a number of things that um, that really put him on the map and made people just Tom Cruise crazy. Yes, then I think that that's for our generation. That's probably a pretty good analogy. I think Brad Pitt. You could say that. Um, Brad Pitt almost, I would say, is a little more. Uh, James Dean because he also seems a little edgier. Tom Cruise seems a little more on the um, uh, just less on the edge, more on the just you know the excitement side of things. But Brad Pitt, I yeah. could see he's an actor who has taken more risk with some of his um, performances, and 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 just when he's getting, you think he's getting used to kind of these big, um, you know poster boy sorts of roles all of a sudden he does something really off the wall like california or something yeah right that's exactly and and so you you know i don't we we certainly can't say that this as dean's first feature film is is one of those like big big budget films i mean would could we even make a a parallel to risky business or something like that i know that's back to to cruise but it, it just made me think of these guys like if they if we had lost them how would we feel about looking at their first three movies um and and i sort of had to put myself in that headspace to look at james dean and to look at what he delivers here and to read about his performance his sort of emotional method uh that you know the number of times he was brought to weeping like legitimately weeping uh off camera uh because of the work that he was doing on camera and and the relationships that he had with people at just the the level of depth with which he felt life uh i I, as reported by those you know who are writing about him, I, I find really fascinating, and he puts it all on screen, and that I I was enormously entertained by. 
in this film. Yeah, and that's that's what I think is is really interesting, and that is what I think going to be an interesting thing for us to explore over these next three films is is what is James Dean uh, bringing to the performance here? You know how um, how is he kind of expressing? you know, the youth of the time and their kind of attitudes and beliefs and, and, uh, you know, why did they tap into him so greatly and, and all of that. I, I, I think it's really interesting because it is, if you, if you step back and just kind of look at it, um, as just a performance, it is full of histrionics. I mean, it's just very big and grandiose and he's contorting himself in his face. Like he moves his face into in such interesting ways. And, you know, like, the moment when he's like looking at the beans sprouting and he starts dancing through the, you know, the different rows of beans and you know, there's kind of just, I mean, he's big and you're right. He puts everything out there and that's what's so interesting about him. So I'm excited to see how he continues growing over the next, uh, next couple of films. So let's knock a, a couple of initial thoughts about this movie. Then uh, get those uh, off the board. Uh, we, we've got the brooding of James Dean, uh, what what's the next thing that struck you as uh, fascinating about the movie? Number two, I think um, Ilya Kazan and the way that he chose to shoot this, I think, is probably the next thing for me that really stood out. This was uh, 1955 cinema scope, and I was expecting kind of the big images, the widescreen stuff, um, even though as a side note here, Pete, I will say I was very disappointed to see that Amazon, uh, which is where I watched it. They show the cinemascope, the the real widescreen cinemascope just during the titles. And then as soon as uh, the movie starts, it drops it back to 16 by 9. So I could tell that we were still going back to pan and scan, even though it's not 4 four by 3 TVs anymore. It still is doing that uh, pan and scan shuffle as as they're really filling the frame from edge to edge. So I got mine on uh, iTunes, and it does not do that. So you have the, I full, got the full I got the full widescreen. Yeah. Lucky man. Lucky man. Oh, uh, what can I say? I should have I, I should have uh, gone that route knowing that they had a fantastic Blu-ray transfer a few years back. Yeah. Um so I may have to I don't know if Rebel was uh, um shot cinemascope but if it is I might have to go iTunes instead of Amazon cuz I'm guessing Amazon pulls the same trick. So yeah, I'm, I'm probably. But anyway, back to uh, back to the the camera work. I I was just really impressed with the way that Kazan and and um, his DP uh, Ted McCord shot this film, and they played with Dutch angles and and they and just the compositions, the way that they filled frames for what is essentially kind of a family drama. You didn't see Cinemascope films um, about family dramas much at this time. It was usually the big westerns or the big you know kind of the the action films types of things. This was kind of a, an odd choice to do in Cinemascope, and it was Kazan's first Cinemascope. And it was his DP's first cinemascope. And so they're like, hey, let's just let's push this to the limits and see what we can do. So it gave them freedom uh, to really kind of play around with compositions. And I was just loving some of the, the, the way that they came up with beautiful imagery throughout this film. I was, too. I, I found that, uh, you know, some of these sequences were quite jarring. Uh, a at as you say well in in my rarefied case uh, the uh, super wide screen that I was enjoying while you were <laughs> panning and scanning 
uh, all over the screen. Uh, I I found it really jarring as they would zoom in, and you know, I read that there were that one of the trade offs that they'd made in the uh, you know in shooting in CinemaScope was that when you get so close, you know, they were they were instructed based on those cameras not to get any closer than six feet, and that apparently really uh, from the subject that apparently really rubbed Kazan the wrong Kazan the wrong way, and so they ran a lot of tests and discovered you know we can get closer to the subject, but it's going to distort the edge of the frame. You know what? Let's distort the edge of the frame. And you can see it in so many wonderful sequences. And it adds a fantastic sense of otherworldliness to uh, to these scenes where, uh, you know, where it's it's a scene of great intensity or it's great. It just makes you feel like you're sort of living outside of Cal's body as he is as he's moving through this this world. It, it's I think it's really wonderful. And they did a lot of stuff with like attaching that camera to movement so they would tilt at an off angle and particularly you know we'll talk about in the deep scene dive is there you know they they move with the with the the subject back and forth for example like on a swing or uh as they're tilting around a conversation i think it it uh that sense of movement again it feels like you're on a boat it's really jarring and i i loved it that was a sure sign as i was uh as I put this on, I was like, man, they did some really, really unique stuff here. So that was a thrill. Um, Next to that, I I found it really kind of an interesting story. This whole Cain and Abel um, adaptation angle where uh, Steinbeck really kind of pulled this biblical story of, of brother against brother and brought it into this, uh, this world here. Um, I, again, I'm really curious to see what Steinbeck did with the rest of the story, because I feel like there's a lot more that probably leads up to where the boys are by the time we get to them. But that being said, I I enjoyed the story quite a bit. I enjoyed having kind of this Cain and Abel analogy. And I think there were times where I did struggle with it. Uh, you know, sometimes it just seemed like, oh, James Dean is just being bad because he's just he he knows he's the bad one and and his brother is so good. And it was just it was a little too much. Um, and so I, I was a little frustrated. But by I, I think what really made it work for me was by the time we get to, to the end and we have that that big climax, which um, really <laughs> shook me. I was really surprised that that's where it went. But at the same time, I'm like, of course, he's going to he's going to take his brother to to mom because he's the bad one. And what was so interesting to me is even mom, uh, what a great character she is, who she's just so enamored by her son, Cal. And she's always like, you're such a good boy, Cal. She's just, you know, I can't remember what she's saying, but it, he proves even to her that, no, I'm the bad one, you know, by thrusting the good son at her. It was it was really uh, quite, um, quite a, a powerful turn that the story took. But then it gave us an ending that I found so satisfying. So it it took me on quite a ride, this story. And I, I really enjoyed that nature of it. I found it interesting. I, I wanted more out of the mother's storyline. And, and I was frustrated because I, I, I wanted so much more and I didn't get it. I felt like the, the resolution, the say hello to your mother, I, that was such a, a wonderful uh, lead up that that you know he is the bad one but also he's the good one he's taking sort of control of removing secrets from the family line you know and and that is is something to be lauded in so many other narratives and so why not here uh let's let's remove the barriers that we have between us let's get it all out on the table and just see what happens that's that's something that is in other circumstances heroic so look at him subverting the I'm the bad one storyline uh, and, and doing it in a way that 
it's 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 a hurtful demonstration, but otherwise could be seen as kind of a heroic move. I I actually liked that, and it was such a short scene. I wanted it to. I wanted more. I wanted more earned sort of rage and response, and then just closing the door and having him just sort of skip down the hallway. I found a, a, a left me feeling a little bit empty. Um, so I, that that was frustrating, especially because I so love Joe Van Fleet as Kate. I thought she was such a wonderful uh, uh, performance, even as brief as it was. Yeah, I, she was one of those uh, uh, actresses in this film. And I, you know, I was racking my brains. I'm like, I don't know if I've seen her in anything before. She was really compelling as this woman and made a very interesting turn. I mean, she's really kind of the first person that we're following, right? We see her right out of the gate as she's off to the bank to do, get some money. And then and then we see uh, Cal following her. I just, I, I don't know. I just found her really compelling. I guess she was in uh, Cool Hand Luke. Cool but, Hand Luke, uh, yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, very interesting. Very interesting woman. I felt like I wanted more out of her entire story. Yeah, this is me one of, you know, being a Steinbeck revisionist. I was far more interested in her at the brothel than I was in at the, you know, the Bible family in the ice house and the lettuce refrigerator. Like that, that was just not a thing I was into at all. So it was really hard for me to be interested in what was going on at the at their house. I, I wanted to go back to the, you know, seedy part of the of town. Well, it certainly makes for um, a, a darker element of the story. And I think that's why it's more compelling. Um, yeah. But I do think that um, when Cal was dealing with uh, his father and his brother, that, that dynamic I found really interesting. Like when Cal, um, they're fighting at the dinner table and his father uh, makes him read from the Bible. And just that, the way that the animosity that he has as he's reading, you know, it was just really, really interesting. So I enjoyed that quite yeah. a bit. Yeah, I enjoy that too. I enjoy that too, and and both of the scenes of confrontation. You know, the scene it, it's interesting. We, uh, um, uh, the scene we're not talking about specifically the the birthday party. It, it, it's a tough it, it's a tough sequence uh, to watch. I don't have any uh, I, I don't have any siblings, uh, but I imagine if I had one like this, I would punch him in the neck a lot. <laughs> the. Yeah, the the relationship between Cal and his brother is is a really interesting one, um, and you know that's something that I I found um, I I don't know I I again I don't know the story but the the element of fighting over the sister I wasn't as in love with I'm not sorry not the sister but fighting over the girlfriend I wasn't as in love with it I enjoy that element because I think she makes a great um, person for Cal to play off of. But, uh, you know, I just I struggled with the the um, I, I don't know, just some of that dynamic. Uh, and I really was more interested in everything going on between the brothers. So and maybe, it's you know, I love I mean, I really do enjoy uh, Julie Harris quite a bit. Um, but there's something about the character of Abra that I just wasn't as crazy for. I like Abra after uh, Aaron leaves. Right, yeah. she well, like the end, she right. turns the end. Right, she turns, uh, and maybe it's even after their sequence on the um, uh, on the Ferris wheel. Um, you know, they have their kiss and their their lamented, regretful kiss, and then he climbs down, uh, which is I would never do that. I don't think I think something would have to be straight up on fire to have me climb off of a <laughs> Ferris wheel. Um, I, that would be that would be tough tough going. 
I might root for whatever's going on down below. I might do some cheering, but I wouldn't climb down. He climbs down and he jumps off and there's that great shot where he's like jumping down on the camera, which is fantastic. And and from then on, she is kind of a different character. She takes on much more of a um that 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 much more of a strong kind of caretaker role and she takes a much more active role in in uh, pushing um uh, Cal is, toward his father, and uh, in that final sequence, which I think is is strong, and um, and and so I like her. I I like her much better than I thought she was. Kind of a drip in the first half of the movie, and maybe that was my struggle with her. And I mean, to that end, I guess that's how she's supposed to be. She's supposed to be kind of written that way. But I don't know. It was just a, it was a little more frustrating for me. I do I do enjoy her more at the end as she has a a. a a better tie between Cal and the father and is the kind of the catalyst that brings them together. Burl lives, Andy Burl lives. He's an adorable man. I find it so um, funny to watch Burl lives in films um, <laughs> because I mean, you know, he's one of those actors that as a kid, you grow up with Burl lives in a very particular way. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Like yeah. yeah, he's the snowman in in uh, Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer. Um, he's in all those uh, those cheesy old Disney movies like uh, uh, um, Summer. Oh, was it Summer or something? Summer Magic. Um, you know, he's he's all those kids albums. Like I have so many records, or I had so many records of of Burl Ives just singing all these kids songs. Like he was one of those guys. And then as you grow up, you start seeing him in in some of the performances that he was in it's like oh <laughs> this is not the person that i knew was singing me those songs as a kid now granted <laughs> this is really not that bad of a performance i mean he's fine as the sheriff here I, you know it's more like looking at as big daddy or something or in cat yeah exactly cat and hudson like, oh my goodness uh, <laughs> well, I love that that I, I finally made the connection. I don't think I had ever made the connection between this film and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, that he is Sam the Snowman in Rudolph and Sam the Sheriff here. That, that, <laughs> please tell me that's intentional. It's an embarrassing accident that of awesome. uh, naming. Um, but you're exactly right. Although I, you know, I characterize him as certainly more than fine in this movie. I thought his, uh, the, the scene where he uh, stops the fight uh, in in front oh, yeah. of the uh, the Germans' house was great. I actually really enjoyed that sequence. Um, you know, I thought he was, uh, you know, the the level of sort of sort of social subservience that the town shows to him, uh, in spite of their rage. I thought was really great as he's kind of wandering around and and acknowledging everybody by name. That there's there's no mob scene here because I know you all. Uh, you are all individuals. I thought that was a a, a wonderful twist. Yeah, no, I agree there. I agree. You know that he's uh, he has a Star Wars connection. Oh, do tell. He's the narrator in the Ewok adventure. Oh. <laughs> well. <laughs> uh, look, wait, Andy. I just forgot that little tidbit. It was in, and now it's. I forgot it again. That was so fast. Oh, you. thank goodness. Oh, you. Good grief. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let, should we talk about the Germans? Speaking of the fight in front of the house. Yeah, I do not I, like the Germans in this movie. Boy, and that was interesting because this film takes place World War One, or right at the yeah, start, pre, uh, the right cusp. at the start of World War One. And um, the film was released in '55, so it's it's just an interesting thing to have, kind of that element of of this vitriol spewed toward uh, Germans, in particular this one German who lives in town, 
And so to kind of be taking this position of, hey, you know, not everybody's that bad. It just, it struck me as, wow, this seems like, I wonder if this was a thing at the time when this came out where people were talking about it, like, oh, I can't believe that. Or it made it open people's eyes to, you know, not everybody's a Nazi or something. You know, it was, it was, it was an odd little thing to th- be thrown in here. No, I, you know, I think you're right. And I think uh, it is it is interesting. And I think it was it was, uh, uh, you know, sort of softly peddled as as they're trying to protect him and, and have, you know, keep him safe behind his picket fence, which was summarily destroyed. Wow. Uh, th- that was one of the most interesting th- <laughs> little set design pieces that that in the midst of this fight that there were people who were taking down the white picket fence and there was something about that to me uh and, and i don't mean this as a joke like this is a dismantling a, a systematic dismantling of the american dream and we're going to do it post by post and in some cases we might you know there might be a sequence of somebody trying to you know beat somebody else up with a stick but there were people carrying whole sections of fence uh, off of a specifically a white picket fence uh, in the middle of the yard. And I thought that was uh, that actually struck me, um, you know, doing that to the house where a, a German lives in 19, uh, you know, 40, you know, 38, 39, whenever. Uh, I thought that was really interesting. And and possibly unintentionally funny when Burl Ives interrupts the fight. There's that guy standing behind him who's like got like a 10 foot chunk of fence. Yeah. And he's just like yeah. holding it up in the air like. What were you going to do with that? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I needed a fence, <laughs> I, I, and I was going to take this right. one. Let's <laughs> go. The roses were next. <laughs> you know, you say that like a joke, but we had a flower thief when I was growing up. There was this uh, neighborhood lady who would go uh, from house to house and like very systematically dig up people's flowers and replant them in her own yard. That's a real thing, flower thievery. I have never heard of that before, and I'm shocked that people go to such <laughs> such lengths. They go on their their morning walks with some paper bags or some uh, plastic bags, and they will dig up at the roots and leave little holes in your yard. Wow, mm-hmm. thieves! I heard it where people do the opposite, where they actually will graft branches of one type of uh, like tree onto another tree, uh, you know, so that it, it kind of uh, hybridizes and. It's one of those things. Like, why? Why are they going to those lengths? I don't They're know. I guess they really wanted in, lemons to grow in on your that front lime yard. Tree. I, <laughs> I tried to imagine somebody sneaking into my up to my house and doing that. Like, they are playing a very long game. Uh, Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I'm going to hybridize a tree in your yard. Hope you don't notice for like two seasons, but then I'll be back. It's what the emperor yeah. would do. We. <laughs> Meanwhile, back east of Eden. <laughs> Let's do the DSD, Andy. Let's do it. I chose this scene, and I chose this scene. I think, well, at least I proposed this scene, and you agreed to this scene because it has the line. I don't know. I'm not my brother's keeper. Uh, I felt like that we had to honor the honor the word because of the Bible stuff and because of the the book, and it, it's kind of a big moment uh, in this sequence. Abra is reading to Adam in the chair after a big blow up in the house. And, and um, uh, uh, we have uh, Cal who comes back. This is immediately after Cal has escorted uh, Aaron to, uh, Aaron. Uh, to meet, Aaron to meet <laughs> mom. And, uh, and so we've, uh, we have had that unveiling and now he's coming back, uh, Cal, to, to confront uh, dad. 
And so we, we start this about an hour 41, an hour 42, where Abra is reading to uh, Adam, and uh, we see uh, Cal through the glass uh, window of the front door at the far end of the house. And again, making great use of that really wide screen uh, when when we get the whole, 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 it seems like the whole first floor of the house, not that you would know uh, from your version. I'm sure there's a lot of scanning. Wow. Panning. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to keep pushing that one. What do you think of this scene? This scene really does exhibit quite a bit of unique work going on here. The um, The performance, I mean, you've got a very big, uh, grandiose performance from James Dean here, opposite Raymond Massey as uh, as his father Adam. Um, you can really sense the tension between the two of them. Um, it's largely their scene. Um, Julie Harris does uh, have a bit as Abra here, and and she's I think she's she is uh, pretty solid in this scene too. Um, you get some really fantastic camera work in this scene too, which is really great to see. I mean the um, uh, just the way that the the very first moment of this sequence is framed um, before uh, James Dean gets to the house. It's this overhead uh, shot, um, your really high angle looking down on her as she's reading to Adam. And, uh, and it's kind of a Dutch angle. And you have these streamers cutting diagonally across the frame, right across... Uh, right across the father, which makes for a really, really exciting and interesting composition that just just unsettles you. And then, of course, you you pan over and you see uh, James Dean is all, in all his craziness come over before he gets onto the swing. And then you get just the craziest bit of camera work in this film that I was never expecting to see in a film from this era. It's interesting. It was blocked like a play. Like I could, it, it, and and I think we see that a lot when you know we see movies in this this era when you have these wonderful stages and um, and, and so the blocking uh, was interesting that we move from in the house through the house we can see the set outside. Uh, and, you know, they start with uh, Cal on the swing, swinging out and back and out and back. And as, as uh, you know, his dad comes out uh, and, and meets him, that's where we see the, the sort of collision. It felt like a collision between stage blocking, creative, clever stage blocking, and this giant widescreen camera. It felt like just sort of history and technology smashing headlong into one another, and uh, it, it created this fantastic mix over the course of about a minute of the camera moving to try to capture all of the the movement of Cal on the swing and Dad on the porch, and uh, and it was just really. Uh, magical, uh, you know. I felt like it was right in their fight. Not to mention some of the the strongest writing uh, in uh, in the um, in the sequences uh, as they resolve some of the more active visuals. And Cal is about to leave, and he's he he says, you know, I I took uh, I took Aaron over there uh, uh, tonight because I was jealous. I've been jealous all my life, so jealous I couldn't even stand it. Tonight I tried to buy your love, but now I don't want it anymore. I can't use it anymore. Uh, and, and that just hit me right in the chest. Just beautiful. Well, and this exhibits so much of the greatness of James Dean, especially when he's um, he has that real sense of anger in his character. I mean, yeah. he is vicious to his father. The way that he delivers those lines, like, you know, he's with her. He's with his mother, the way that he yeah. says it, you know, it just it, it just has so much hate and anger. 
um, and all of that resentment for everything that's happened and and all the love that he's never received. Um, brilliant performance by James Dean, and and the way that Raymond Massey plays opposite that, just kind of, you know, once he knows what's going on, he just kind of collapses into that chair, and and it just it's almost like he just sinks further and further as as Dean continues talking, and it, it just he's a man who is just broken, and it, it just it's a beautiful beautiful um, battle between these two men as as one man is just. Uh, really loses out to his son and realizes kind of all the errors of his ways. I don't want that kind of love anymore. It doesn't pay off. There's no future in it. Yeah. Right. And that's a fantastic callback from the father, uh, you know, to the very beginning of the, of the movie when they're, you know, checking out this ice house, uh, you know, trying to look at, at what pays off in terms of the future of food storage, you know, the, the whole, it seems like that's a, that's, an interesting sort of arc, a parallel between kind of the practical, uh, the the development of his business and the development of his relationship with his family. Um, and, and I found that really touching. It really is tragic. But again, that's why I, I found such strength in this film and really in Steinbeck's writing, the way they adapted it, the way that uh, Kazan told it in cinematic fashion here. The way that we build to uh, to that climax when when his father is has had a stroke and is in bed and and the way that this relationship we see the the really uh, the real tearing asunder of this relationship in this scene I mean it's been going on all their lives but this is that final moment really the last straw um, but then you get that moment with with Dean and his father. Um, uh, when his father's uh, had a stroke and can't speak, just the just beautifully haunting moment as he ends up saying, "I'm going to stay with him. I'm going to I'm going to be here," and he stays with his father, and that um, was one of the most beautiful payoffs that I, uh, I really was never expecting. I wasn't expecting it either, and I found myself walking away from it a little bit dissatisfied. It had to age on me because I I sort of wanted Dad to die. I felt like that was going to be. Uh, 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 you know, the the darker payoff on this film, right? That it's going to end kind of sad. And, and in the end, we get a resolution, uh, e- even if it's a resolution with a ticking clock, you know, and I, one of the best moments of the movie in, in terms of the dark humor is the conversation between the nurse and Abra when Abra says, tell, tell me like it is. Tell, tell me the truth. Tell me what's really going to happen. And the nurse says, you're, you're not the family, right? I mean, I can, I can be straight with you. Uh, yeah, yeah, you can be straight with me. Man, do I hate these jobs where I get them when they're on the way out. You know, I don't remember what the line is, but she's just like, basically oh, that, yeah. Boy, <laughs> you know, I, I know I'm not going to be here very long. And, and that is, I just, I, I felt like I, like if I've, if I've guffawed, uh, at a movie recently, recently, this is what that is. This is kind of sound. <laughs> <laughs> just she's so good. Uh, the, I just love that moment, and and so that that actually makes the payoff at the ending uh, even better. So I it it had to had to age on me a little bit again the um, that that final sequence because I, I I'm not sure I expected the the any sort of familial resolution, and I expected the brooding James Dean to go off into the you know get back on a train. There's such great train sequences when he's sitting on the on the top of this train, you know, moving towards tunnels and passing trains and and I, I sort of expected that but uh, um, uh, this was uh, this it was really quite lovely these are some elements that were in the book as far as um, building to the end and I wonder if they would have um, helped if these had been in the film because the film it, it didn't it it's not like it was this this three hour um, 
opus or anything like that. It could have yeah. done with ten extra minutes and and just been just fine. In the well, book, I know there's a bit with the mother that would have yeah. that would have helped me, right? Because in the, right yeah. after um, the whole thing with with Cal throwing Aaron at their mother. Um, and Aaron flees, um, she is so racked with self-hatred that she signs her estate to Aaron, and then she commits suicide. So that's how that whole storyline ends. And then See, Aaron, and don't you think, though, I mean, as an aside, don't you think that that resolves her storyline more, more satisfactorily? Like, we don't get an end to her story. Exactly. And that's something that I was disappointed in, is that we don't ever come back to her again. And we really should have. And why they didn't, I think it was because Kazan, from from reading about him and kind of what he was looking for in the story, it really was the father and son story. And so mm-hmm. I think the mother was only there as a foil to to throw Aaron at. Um, so to that end, I can I can see how it may have worked out that way. But I absolutely agree. We really are missing that closure. And then the other element is that Aaron, he enlists to fight in the war and then he then it, I think it just would have been too too extended of story uh, to have at this point in the film. Um, he goes off to battle and he's killed in the last year of the war. And that is when Adam suffers his stroke when he hears the news uh, mm-hmm. that uh, that uh, Aaron has died in battle. Um, and then that's what brings um, Cal back to uh, to talk with him and everything. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember that at all. Well, but I felt like, you know, having Cal, I mean, having Aaron die in battle um, would have been a nice impetus for uh, for that whole ending to happen. Because then that's a nice, exactly. another nice resolution that we that we don't get. Although I do, I do feel that it is a pretty powerful way to end it where we don't know what's going to happen to Aaron. We know he's kind of gone crazy and he's he's run off to to fight in war. Um it's it's it leaves that a little open ended, but we know it's probably not going to go well for him because I mean the last time we see him, he smashes his head through the train window and just cackles as the train drives away. The next time we see him, he's changed his name to John Rambo, <laughs> and he comes to a little Pacific Northwest uh, lumber town. Wow! Ends up having to take yeah. I mean you know people change in war. Yes, they do. Production design. I got, okay, back to our deep scene dive, Andy. Production oh. design: James Basivi and Malcolm Burt. I just want to acknowledge that the, the the production design, set design of these things, because it's uh, it, it's hard to make these work and feel natural and and to integrate with the the filming of the the staged work, you know. And I think this was a this was really well done. It was a beautiful world. Everything about it. It felt very. Very uh, turn of the century, kind of that. Uh, it takes place in that Monterey, nineteen seventeen. I think it is, is when it starts. Uh, kind of that era, and I I felt it like I felt like it had that lived in um, period feel. So I yeah I totally agree. The production designers here did a great job. Costume designer, um, they all worked really well to create this world that I bought into. Now what do you, what do you think of Leonard Rosenman's music? I, I felt a little uh, a little betrayed by uh, by Rosenman that uh, that he didn't bring any elements from East of Eden back when he did the Star Trek for the Voyage Home music. Oh my God! He oh n- no <laughs> no <laughs> no! Oh yes, he was Nimoy's friend. Yes, he was. He oh, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't make that connection at all. 
He's oh, the one who ruined nice. the Star Trek universe. <laughs> He's the one. Music. He oh. broke Star Trek. <laughs> Suddenly, this show just became so much more resonant. <laughs> <laughs> it all is tied together, Pete. Wow. Well played. Oh, I need a break. Uh, let's uh, let's talk about Paul Osborne, uh, who did the adaptation. Uh, again, chapters 39 through 55, is that what you said of the, the book, the last yeah, part of the book? Right. Um, uh, we, uh, w- what do we think of the good Paul Osborne? He's been around a, a long time. I should say he was around a long time. But he wrote some movies that uh, we might might be familiar with, South Pacific. Uh, uh, Sayonara, Brando. I I don't know if I have seen many of his films, if um, if anything else that, that he had done. Um uh, maybe I'm trying to remember if I, if I ever, uh, fully watched, uh, Mrs. Miniver. I don't think I did, but I mean, he's, I think he's a, uh, uh, a screenwriter who, um, fits in the era. I think he, he does a, an admirable job of adapting kind of from the source material. He had worked on, um, uncredited, uh, an adaptation of Tortilla Flat back in the forties, another Steinbeck novel. Um, and so, I mean, he already had experience with kind of that Steinbeck world and the way that Steinbeck told his stories. And so, you know, I think that he captured the essence of what, to me, again, not having read the novel, it feels like Steinbeck characters, though. And and that's what I like here, is that it, it feels very much in that world. I can't believe you haven't seen South Pacific. I know. I cannot believe that. I That is a list of shame item for you. And we'll move on. Also, The Yearling. I can't believe you haven't seen The Yearling. I know. I was forced to watch it many times as a youth. Really? The Yearling. Is that a horse movie? Yes, it's a horse movie. (laughs) I come from a strong line of horse people. (laughs) Yeah, we're horse people. What of it? (laughs) We've talked a little bit about uh, Elliot Kazan. Give us a little background on his work on this film. This was his film that he did right after on the waterfront. So, I mean, he was riding high as he kind of came into this project. And uh, this was um, right after, um, or he had been working at Columbia. And I guess because of his the high that he was at right here, Warner Brothers said, hey, come on over here. We'll, we'll let you do whatever you want to do next. And we'll give you uh, uh, your, your final cut and everything. And so he's like, yeah, that sounds great. And so he he jumped ship with Columbia and went over to Warner Brothers to make this. And yes, he got final cut and and he got to bring along his color consultant John Hamilton um, because this was his first color film. This was uh, Kazan's first color film. It was also his first film in CinemaScope, as we already said. And so um, I think that this was just a story that really resonated with him. Um, he had um, what was it? gosh I'm trying to remember what it was that he had been working on something. Um, in the early 50s when Steinbeck was actually writing the novel. And he was, I think, one of the first people who Steinbeck let read it. And and I guess it just really resonated with him because he had his own issues with his father. Um, his father, I think, wanted him to take over their, I can't remember what it is, like a um, washing business or something like that. And uh, his, his mother... <laughs> a washing business? I don't remember what they did. <laughs> they washed stuff. They wash things. And his mother um, wanted him to go to school and, and kind of pushed for that. And so it created a rift 
um, with his family because of that. And so, um, uh, I, I think that, uh, it, it was a rug merchant. That's what it was. His father was a rug merchant, totally different hmm. than the washing business. <laughs> right. He didn't. And, and those rugs were decidedly unwashed, <laughs> very unwashed. But um, but he had his own issues. And then I think he saw in James Dean that same thing because James Dean had his own issues with his father. And that was something that um, Kazan really connected with this story. He connected with the character of Cal. He thought um, uh, James Dean was the perfect person to play Cal. Um, and uh, even though he's like, you know, he's he's kind of rough, he lacks technique, but there was something about him that he uh, really connected with. But I, I think it was just, this was a film that was very personal to him because of the way that it connected to his personal life. The one thing about Kazan that I suppose is uh, still relatively controversial is the fact that he is one of the people um, that testified for uh, the House Committee on Un-American Activities. Right. And that is one of those things that uh, created quite a rift and I know when he got that honorary Oscar back in the late 90s, there were quite a few people in the audience who refused to applaud for him for having named names. So, um, hmm. yeah. Uh, we, we've talked, obviously, about James Dean. I, one thing about James Dean and, and Ray Massey that I like so much, because you already said they were trying to ratchet up the, the, um, you know, the, the angst between the two uh, on scene. And uh, I find it just delightful that Kazan instructs during the Bible reading scene, you know, when Massey is as dad instructs his son to read from the Bible, uh, as they're doing that to to really ratchet up the the uh, agony in that sequence. He he off screen had instructed Dean to uh, intersperse foul language into the Bible verses, and I in in order to really upset Massey, and it really did to the point where he. Uh, stomped off and threatened to call his lawyers uh, because he was so insulted by what they had done to the Bible. And I think that is uh, that's just so funny, so funny uh, when you just know what buttons that you're able to push. I think that's, that is uh, delightful toying with the actor. And yet the actor walks away and says this is, a, this is a, if, you know, one of the pivotal roles of his career. Well, and it's interesting because Massey was such a consummate actor and, and, and always was prepared and everything. And he hated working with, with Dean, who was never prepared and was always kind of, you know, fudging his lines or, or giving his own readings on things. And it's it very much fits in context with, I think, the characters. And so I think to that end, Kazan really did a, a bang up job of finding the right people to play those parts. What's interesting is that initially the two brothers, um, I think they were considering... Uh, Marlon Brando and Montgomery Clift as the brothers, mm -hmm. but they were just way too old. And Paul Newman was also on that list, but also too old. And so um, when they brought James Dean on, he was still, what, 23, I think? Um, still probably too old, but yeah, you know, young. Yeah. yeah they, he, he looked young. And I, th I think that right. the two brothers actually looked pretty good for supposedly teenagers. Richard Duvalis looked younger than, than uh, certainly younger than Dean. This was also his first performance. Yeah, right. And yet when you have them on screen, uh, they, they look remarkably like brothers. I think it was a, it's a fantastic choice when they, when they're on screen together and, and Dean's head is right over, uh, Devalo's shoulder in, in the mom's office during the big confrontation. Uh, I, I, that was, that's just, they are absolutely brothers. Yeah. Absolutely. That was great. Lois Smith, Andy. Lois Smith plays Anne. Wow. 
as soon as I saw her in that in that uh, house of sin, <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, that's that's what's her name, Marjorie Prime. That's Marjorie Prime. <laughs> it's just amazing. Yeah, she's the last living cast member from the movie, and uh, here she is still cranking stuff out. Uh, just did Marjorie Prime. Uh, and Lady Bird uh, last year and, uh, you know, just is constantly working. You know, she's still has a project in post right now, just did Sneaky Pete. So she's, you know, she is a busy, busy lady. Uh, how did it do uh, in award season? This was a, uh, it was a popular film, you know, it was a popular book. It was a popular, uh, popular film. This is one of those movies that was kind of like critically not as loved as it was um, by the audiences, but, um, but it still did uh, well for itself uh, in the awards circles. The film uh, w- received uh, 13 wins and 10 other nominations. At the Academy Awards, uh, Joe Van Fleet did win Best Actress in a Supporting Role. Um, James Dean was nominated for Best Actor. This, um, it's, this is all in this period of time. Um, this movie and his next two films were all shot in very close proximity. This was the first one that was released. This is the only film that James Dean saw of his performances in that was completed. The other two films he never actually saw as completed products before he died. And um, this came out the same year as Rebel Without a Cause. He was nominated for this film. It was the first posthumous acting nomination in Oscar history, actually. But he wow. did end up losing to... Uh, somebody else we've talked about on uh, another show, Ernest Borgnine. Yeah. Ugh. Well, it's it's you know it's different sorts of roles, and you know honestly, I don't know. Frank Sinatra, the man with the golden arm, James Cagney, Love Me or Leave Me, Spencer Tracy, Bad Day at Blackrock. It's a lot of tough performances yeah, to tough. go for. You know, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure who I would have gone with. Yeah, that's crazy. Kazan. Uh, was nominated for Best Director, but lost to Delbert Mann for Marty. And uh, Best Screenplay lost to Patty Chayefsky. Uh, at the Golden Globes, it did win Best Picture, and uh, and Dean did receive a posthumous Special Achievement Award. Um, this is one of those films, though. It's, it's just very popular. The AFI named it one of the 400 Best American Films of All Time. In 2016, it was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as a film that was culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. So it's a film that is marked by time as a very important one, um, which I think is very interesting because when I watch it, I think it's pretty good. I don't know if I if I love it or would say, wow, this is one of the most important films that are out there. I certainly didn't didn't feel it, but I, I feel like the the fact that James Dean's entire cinematic career uh, from release date to release date of his three films spanned 19 months. Right. Yeah. Is, is amazing. And that I think, uh, helps to buoy, uh, I, I think the, the memory, the collective sort of cinematic memory of, uh, and of the importance of this movie. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that it was the first and nearly the last. And just to clarify, I mean, he had been in other projects. He did a lot of TV stuff. I mean, a lot of TV, like, right. From but 51 to fifty, early 55, he was in a lot of TV stuff, bit parts in films. But yeah, these three films that we're talking about, I mean, those are really kind of the James Dean films. It is. It's his his cinematic career, his major cinematic career. I mean, that's the, 19 months, April to November of, of 56. So... It's fascinating to me that that and and I think that helps. I th- this is a movie that has some fantastic 
sequences and some fantastic performances uh and uh, on the whole it it's a it's a good movie and i i enjoyed watching it but uh i didn't find it as transcendent as i think i went into it imagining it to be yeah right right this is a movie uh that uh obviously the the source material is rich and it is not uh the only adaptation of steinbeck's work in 1981, uh, there was a TV miniseries uh, that aired in three installments. Uh, Karen Allen, Ann Baxter, Hart Bachner, Timothy Bottoms, Sam Bottoms, Bruce Boxleitner, Lloyd Bridges, Howard Duff, Warren Oates, and Jane Seymour uh, were all in it. And it was, uh, yeah, one of those one of those things. I, I don't remember it at all, but apparently it was out there. A lot of B names in that list. Six of them. And then <laughs> what's interesting is that Universal... Um, they have actually, uh, I think, tried uh, before to make to do another uh, telling of this story um, with uh, Ron Howard and Paul Atanasio attached to do it. Um, it. It didn't happen, and then I think they were going to do another one with Tom Hooper directing, Christopher Hampton writing the screenplay, and then I guess right now Gary Ross is attached as a writer director. Jennifer Lawrence possibly being cast in it, um, but this was that was as of 2013, so that's five years ago. I don't know if it's still considering uh, they're still considering it. Um, as of April 2014, Gary Ross had said they're going to do it, but they're going to split it into two stories. I have no idea what the status of mm-hmm. this is, but I'm curious. It's it's an interesting tale, you know. These Steinbeck stories, I think, have a lot of uh, staying power, and so. It could be something that we do see a remake of one of these days. You, uh, I know you have a rich report on the budget. Oh, it was tough, man. These are those uh, some of these films in the in in these windows. It just you just can't find uh, information. I I looked all over to see if I could find any budget information or uh, information about uh, how much it it uh, made at the box office. I couldn't find anything. Actually, I did find one loose statistic and I don't know it just said it made five million dollars in rentals um I don't know if the, I'm, I'm assuming that's theater rentals for where it played but I just I don't really have any more information than that unfortunately I'm sorry man I know that's I know. uh I know that's Breaks a segment a that bit. you really yeah you look you look forward to uh I think we probably should uh move into uh rank it yes let's do it head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel You'll see all the movies we've talked about on this show, uh, or you can swipe over in your show notes. You can tap the flick chart word right there. It'll take you right over to this movie in flick chart where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up two hours. Where do we start? First up, East of Eden or The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, the new me version. I'm, I'm new me all the way. So am I. East of Eden or The Host. I'm East of Eden. I'm The Host. <laughs> Okay. All right. Let's do it. Here we go. Here we go. One, One, two, two, three. three. Paper. As it should be. The host takes it. East of Eden or near dark? Near dark. Really? I'm going to say East of Eden. Okay. I'll give it to you. (laughs) Okay. East of Eden or from hell? I'm going to say from hell. From hell. East of Eden or volunteers? You know where I'm going. Volunteers for me. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, Andy, I'm East of Eden on this one. You're a big kitty cat. Yes, you are. (laughs) All right, here we go. One, One, two, two, three. three. Scissors. Scissors. Paper. So you took it. 
I did. I took it. East of Eden or the Magnificent Seven, 2016. Magnificent Seven. East of Eden for me. All right, here we go. One, One two, two, three. three. Rock. Scissors. Crush you. Dang it. East of Eden or Prometheus? East of Eden. East of Eden. East of Eden or Ninachka? I'm going to say East of Eden. East of Eden. All right, well, that puts East of Eden at 291 on our chart. 291. All right, so how did that stack up on your personal chart? My personal chart, it landed at 1170 out of 3943, which is about a 70%. Yeah, uh, let's see. I'm at 661 out of 1018, which is uh, uh, 35%. There you go. Wow. All right. That seems a little bit lower <laughs> than I expected it. I am surprised at that. Hater. Uh, I didn't oh. mean to be such a hater. Flickchart has, <laughs> I think, twisted my intentions. Uh, according to the algorithm, what I should be doing is rating this as a two-star on uh, letterbox.com slash the next reel. I feel like that's a little bit low. Even given my ambivalence toward most of the movie, uh, I'm... Uh, I, I think I'm a pretty solid three and a half stars with a heart. And that's exactly where I am. Oh, three excellent. Three and a half stars and a heart. Oh, wow. good. Well, Considering all good. of our fighting over on Flickchart, I'm surprised. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> you have now seen all of all three of his films. Uh, any specific reflections as we go into the next one? It's been a long time. Uh, Rebel is the one that I, I saw first and longest ago. I have not revisited that one since probably college so um i don't remember it uh very well but i'm certainly looking forward to checking it out again uh this is a great place to start rebel without a cause coming up next time next reel couldn't happen without the hard work of stephen smart who runs the instagram program and uh does uh, so many of our fancy graphics uh, for the show uh, every single week and ben Stierick, who's helping out over there ben lot runs uh, the blot spot and all things twitter and the next real theme ragtime instrumental can be found on the soundcloud page of the fine eli catlin when the movie ends our conversation begins Amazon giveth handy. As Amazon always doeth. I've got a one star from the fine uh, Jeremy back in uh, December of 2015 uh, who's who's frustrated. Oh. And I I think this this is going to demonstrate my and possibly our collective ignorance to the book. And I think it's fair to say that most of the complaints about the the movie on Amazon are are all about the book that people yes, are upset I think about the fair book. To say. Uh, 1955 racist Hollywood made this with no Lee. How 1955 racist Hollywood made this with no Lee. How the hell do you make this movie with no Lee? He's a central part of the story. And thank goodness there are others who have his back. Uh, Severus says pathetic and Duker says PC fascist, probably a self hater. Mm. I, I don't know what to do with almost any of that. You know, that's interesting. I, just looking at uh, synopsis of the book, I guess Lee was a Cantonese cook. Oh, okay. At one point. I wonder if they opted to drop that and kind of push the German angle because of the time. Yeah, maybe. Hmm. 
Fascinating. Interesting. Fascist. Oh, there you go. Self-haters. Fascist. So many go. fascist self-haters. I've got a uh, a one star also yeah. complaining about the same reasons. If you have read the book, Don't Bother with This Movie by MDT. I wish that I had read the other low star reviews prior to buying this movie. They all say exactly what I am going to say. If you're thinking to watch the movie to see the characters from the book in full color, don't bother. I couldn't even finish the movie because it was so far off from the book. James Dean's portrayal of Cal is ridiculous, showing Cal as some sort of a half-wit emo precursor, shuffling around in and out of bushes, brows drawn, and what I imagine he thought was ferocity when it really just looked like Neanderthal, and Adam Trask, and where was Lee? Maybe he appeared later, but as I said, I couldn't stomach James Dean's Cal, nor Aaron, nor Abra's characters in the movie, so I quit watching. My favorite character, Sam Hamilton, well, he wasn't there either. I'm going to see if the reviews for the more modern version of East of Eden are any better. Shipping was very fast. <laughs> <laughs> Outstanding. Ending on a high note. Ending on a high, Ending note. On a high note. Always leave them wanting more. There you go. I am going to say, Pete, there's going to be a new Amazon review on here soon, complaining about the lack of CinemaScope presentation. <gasps> Andy, this is unprecedented. <laughs> <laughs> I so wish that you had done that earlier because I would have picked yours. Hallelujah. Oh, maybe, maybe in the future we'll find another opportunity for this. Please watch the Amazon Rebel, please. Thanks, Amazon. Maybe. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.